Christ. The blood of Jesus speaks for you. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. We repent of our sins. We trust in Jesus. And we find eternal life in Him. Salvation in Him. And um, that feeds in very nicely to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Locate in your Bibles, John chapter 4, the Gospel of John and the fourth chapter. Over the past several weeks, we have been asking the question, why? Why do we do what we do as a church? Why do we gather? All of the questions that we asked are in some way attached to the act of gathering as a church. We come into this building. For some of you, it might be once a week. We'd love to see you more than that, but that's when we see you. Sunday morning, or maybe it's Sunday evening. Sometimes we see you Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and then back the next week. Some of you, we see Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday evening, men's Bible study, and then Sunday again. Some of you, we see Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Tuesday Bible study, Thursday prayer meeting, and Sunday again. And for the ladies, we see some of you Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Thursday prayer meeting, every two weeks on a Friday night. And there are opportunities on other days as well to more casually get together, to fellowship, to communicate with one another, and to enjoy uh, that uh, closeness as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Uh, so we've been working through why we do that. Why the gathering of the church? There are plenty of people who scoff at us gathering as a church. I remember last year when um, uh, July uh, 5th came around, and the day before, um, everyone was told across the nation, everything's able to open up again, right? So, so we, we, we've had our services, we've all of this, we're into August now, and uh, we, we had people inside, and we were praising God, and we were preaching, and we were praying, and we were enjoying fellowship, and there were two people who walked, um, uh, who were walking ac across on the other side of the road, and um, they, they were looking at the building, and so uh, I sort of waved them over, introduced myself, and they asked if they could come in and have a look, that they'd never been inside. So they come inside, and um, uh, they're, they're, they're looking around, and they said, oh, oh, you're, you're using it. And I said, yes, I mean, we are, we are a church, and the church uses this building. Uh, and we're, um, uh, we're a very active church. Um, and, you know, definitionally, I think a church is active. Um, if it's not active, then I, I don't know what we can call it a church. Uh, if it's not assembling, how can it be the called out assembly? Well, they were looking for a facility in which to have their bridge club. And I found it very interesting they did not see at all the hypocrisy of coming in looking for a venue for their bridge club, but they began saying things to me very judgmental of us gathering as a church. Now, I mean, that I think to most people, I would hope, is transparently not on. It, you know, it's okay for you to, to sit in a room and filled with people and play cards. 
Fair enough, if you enjoy bridge. But to gather and worship a holy God. You know, isn't that a bit, a bit insensitive of your community? A bit unloving? A bit... It's the most loving thing that we can do. Um, why do we gather? We've talked about that. If you've not listened to those messages, they're all available online, either on our podcast or YouTube or Facebook. So please do have a listen. We work through why we sing, why we pray, why we preach, why we baptize, why we take the Lord's Supper, why, why we um, fellowship and all that that means, and why we gather. Uh, but, you know, I, I began to think about it. Um, it. It's not adequate to talk about why we gather, is it? Because gathering is definitionally very inward focused. And, and, and the, the fact is, if, if we are just about gathering, we're coming into a, place, into a hall, into four walls, and when you draw in, but you never go out, there's something that's missing in the life of the church. Each of you has a, 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 at the core of your body an organ, do you not? What happens with that organ? comes in and it goes out. It pumps in and it pumps out. It's your heart. And you need it to be alive. And so you, you, you have your, your, your heart pumping blood in and pumping blood out. We have to gather, but we also have to go. If we are gathering, but we are not going, we are not alive. And, and, and can I say, if we are going but we are not gathering, are we alive? No. No more. If you're going and you're not gathering, you're, I don't know what you're doing. I, one, I don't know why you're going. Two, I don't know how that going is sustainable. Two, when you go, what is your mission? What is your purpose? What is your goal? What are you attached to? What are you accountable to? How can you stay alive? How can, how can you sustain yourself? And I know you have people say, well, I'm a Christian and I, 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 you know, I'm, I, I go out and I, I do evangelism and um, street preaching and all of that sort of stuff. And, um, and, and I ask, uh, you know, what, what church are you attached to? Where, what, what are you a part of? And they, they say, oh, no, no, I'm not, you know, and sometimes they're here and then there and yawn, and they don't have a clue really why I'm asking that question. For me to ask that question helps me to identify them with a, a, an accountability structure, and it helps me to identify them with a confessional basis. They believe certain things to be true. And I can, I, can, I can know what they believe if I'm familiar with the body that they are a part of. Also, I know that they are not just going out unsustainably on their own telling people about Jesus without other people pouring into their life. See, individuals might be able to pull that off for a while. Some have done of a fashion, but eventually they run out of steam. A church cannot do that because a church is a body. And if you are always going, but you're neither gathering, this hall will be empty. And there will be no gathered local gospel witness in our community. 
In other words, there is no church. There is no family. We're always going. So we have to both gather and go. Both of those are essential to life. We come in, we go out. In the same way, having a heart that pumps well is, is indicative of life. Having a church that at its heart gathers and goes says that we are alive. Let's read from John chapter 4. Hopefully all of this will make sense. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself didn't baptize but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. A woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. But meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you say that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Um, Let's let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lead us and guide us, uh, that you would teach us, help us as we begin this week to understand why we go as a church. Bless and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to be thinking over a few sermons about why we go. And there are three particular areas of going that I want us to explore. Uh, Personal and public evangelism, we'll we'll combine those those two. Um, Social action and global mission. Okay, Personal and public evangelism, social action and global mission. And we'll be looking at each of those on their own terms over the next several weeks. Uh, In the text before us, we see, I believe, substantial reason to go out and tell people the good news about Jesus. That is what evangelism is. Evangelism is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. It is saying that Jesus is King. That Jesus is one who gives us individual justification. That is, by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus Christ, you have every benefit that Jesus purchased on the cross for your eternal salvation applied to your account. You are declared righteous before God. But it's not only about individual justification. It is also about congregational sanctification. You are not only brought to God, you are kept by God and for God, and you are sustained. That's good news, isn't it? Why? Because Jesus is King. Jesus is not only King at the beginning of your salvation life, Jesus is King all the way through it. Jesus is King over your relationships within the body, and it's a beautiful thing, as we'll, we'll see here in a moment even. It's, uh, again, a gospel thing that Jesus Himself does uh, to see people from so many different backgrounds who would potentially, apart from Christ, be at variance with one another. Do you know what I'm saying? You, you, you would have issues with one another. 
if you're in the world. But if you're in Christ, I hope that we, as, as, I, as I look around the room, I see people from the same country but different tribes. But you're here worshiping Jesus and you're enjoying each other's fellowship. I see people that are from different countries altogether. Some of you are set, set close to each other. People that would have issues with each other. I, I, I could single out any random row and probably find that out. Let's go with you, Peter. On one side, you have a sister from Eastern Europe. And I, I have to say, and uh, I don't know if our sister has experienced that or not. I certainly hope not. But I hear a lot of prejudice against Eastern Europeans. And she's from Romania. And I, I hear a lot of stuff about Romanians, which isn't nice or good or wholesome or even true. There you are, sat next to her, singing the praises of Jesus. And, and, and on your side... There's a black British brother, Andrew. You're a white English man. Why are you in the same room together? I hear a lot of unpleasant things said about people of different colors across the world, from different cultures, from different environments. I could do similarly around the room. There are people who are surrounding you who you wouldn't be here together with were it not for the reconciliatory power of Jesus Christ. He brings you together. He brings us together. So there's individual justification, congregational sanctification, communal reconciliation, because we're reconciled to God in Jesus and we're reconciled to each other as Jesus' followers. Well, you know, already I think the message itself is compelling enough for me to go and tell the world, to go and tell people good news that there is a good king who reigns and who, who, who rules and who restores and who reconciles and all these beautiful things. The message is very compelling. But, you know, let me, let me just, to, before we get into that, let's just look at the bare facts. Why should you tell people uh, the good news about Jesus? Because Jesus did. In this passage, it's actually not Jesus' disciples who are engaging one with news. Rather, it is Jesus himself. Are you a follower of Jesus? There's mixed reception in the room, it seems. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. So you're a follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, is the servant greater than the master? That's a question that Scripture asks. It, it, are we better than Jesus? So we must follow Jesus. Jesus did evangelism. Jesus engaged people personally, and He engaged people publicly, personally, in the one-to-one -one conversation that He has with this woman at the well. And that's the heart of the text. But before, He was in another region, and it says He was baptizing more disciples than John. And that drew a bit of unwanted attention, and so He, he left. He goes away. He leaves Judea and departs for Galilee. That's why He's going through Samaria. While he's doing, he's pulled away from that very, very public ministry of good news proclamation, he can't help himself. 
They're just stopping over for refreshments. It's like you pulling over at the side of the road at a petrol station. And you know, somewhat, somewhat, you get out to stretch your legs, and you're just sort of out there stretching your legs, and the family's inside getting the things that, um, you know, that you need, and you just casually engage someone in conversation. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a hot day. A woman comes up to the well, and he has a chat with her. Can you do that? Do you think you can have a conversation? One that gives people hope? One that helps people? One that encourages them and blesses them? Jesus did evangelism. Those who encounter Jesus do. The woman that Jesus talks to that we just read about, after this conversation filled with plenty of back and forth and misunderstandings and rather wild diversions at points. It's like she raises stuff that doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus is talking about, but she's off on that one. Those of you who do evangelism intentionally know that experience well. She suddenly realizes this man is the Christ. She believes in Him. She runs into the town. And what does she do? Having encountered Jesus, she says, come... See a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And, and then later, it's, it seems that it took on more of a positive... So that was a question. But it became more of a statement because the town believes in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Followers of Jesus, those who encounter Jesus, rather, they do evangelism. If you've had an encounter with Jesus and you know Him to be the Christ, can you not go and tell someone Jesus is the Christ? Or even, even just ask a question. What do you think about Jesus? Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And I, I know sometimes people are like, well, your testimony is not the Gospel. But your testimony can point to the Gospel. And I hear people increasingly, they've read someone who knows what they're saying and knows the audience they're speaking to. They say, no, telling a testimony is not in and of itself evangelism or sharing the gospel. And that is a true statement. But I see a lot of people exploit that for laziness in proclaiming Jesus. Uh, and so they just won't. But I was reading about a pastor recently who said, we don't equip for evangelism. They don't need equipping. They're members. We've already, they've already been equipped. We've already assessed that they've repented of sin, believed in Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel, believed in it. They, they have been baptized as His followers. They've been brought into the church. The problem is not equipping. The problem is obedience. But people want the template. They want a tool. They want some catchy gimmick that they can use. And some of that might be useful. But there is nothing intrinsically that is stopping you, if you are a follower of Jesus, from going and telling people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. So, so uh, I mean, it, it can start just with that. Let me tell you about the faithfulness of God in my life. Let me tell you about how, where I was and where I am thanks to Jesus. That is a compelling message. And, you know, 
this, this woman sees her whole town come to Jesus. It seems like it's a proven and workable evangelism technique. Uh, the I was telling you about, they encourage the people in their church to tell what they call grace stories. The stories of God's grace in their life. The story of the gospel as it relates to them and has been applied to them. Because when you relate to someone your experience of God's grace and you back it up with what you know about Jesus and what you know about the gospel, they can't deny that. They can't refute that. If your life is in order, I'm not saying you're perfect. Are we following? Okay. Jesus did it. Those who encounter Jesus do it. Jesus expects His disciples to do it. You know, the, the interesting thing here is, it's Jesus who is engaging the woman in a conversation, and the woman who goes into town, say, having just met Jesus, saying, come see a man who told me all I ever did, the same town the disciples had gone to. But they weren't the ones going into town proclaiming Jesus. This person who had a fresh encounter with Jesus, she's the one going. But those who are established disciples, they're just, you know, concerned about the logistics and the practicalities of what they'll eat and when and how and why is he having a conversation with this person at this time and all of this. And, and they're bogged down by nitpicking and um, there's, there's a bit of judgmentalism going here as well as Jesus doing things how they would do it. And they're focused on their agenda themselves. They're hungry, they need to eat, they want him to eat, and they're actually missing the moment. That here is a town that has been waiting for Messiah. So 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 needed is Messiah. That when this woman that we will see is not a woman of particularly good reputation, runs into the town and starts proclaiming Christ, they listen and they all go out to meet him. A woman who no one cared to listen to normally. But Jesus expects his disciples to be doing that. That's why he tells them the fields are white to harvest. And it's not like you, you're like, oh, it's so difficult. Well, he's saying that some hard work has gone on before. You're entering into someone else's labor. Someone else has been doing work. Someone else has been praying hard. Someone else has been doing evangelism. Someone else has been proclaiming the gospel. You're, you're just standing on the shoulders of people who've come before you. And particularly... His application is you're entering into God's labor. God's gone ahead. God's been doing the work. Jesus has gone before you. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that you have an opportunity then when someone asks you a question to answer honestly? Do you believe that when, when um, you know, there's, uh, you know, someone hasn't asked you a question, but you're having an interaction with them. There may be opportunities, and not just opportunities, but open doors to tell people about God's faithfulness in your life. How He saved you. How He brought you from darkness into light. For some of you, I know your story. For some of you, 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 you were mired in something that I think the whole world could, could say, oh, that's wrong and that's sinful. For, 
for, for others of you, it might be stuff that, you know, people don't really bat an eyelid at. But you came to see that this is sinful. This is rebellion against God. And, um, and, and what transformed your thinking has helped you and made your life more wholesome. And do the same for them. Similarly, some of you have, um, have, have known God's, God's power in your relationships. How, uh, uh, either that's healing uh, relationships, reconciling relationships, bringing you into relationships. Uh, some of you married, um, you know, all of that type of stuff because of the work of God in your life. For some of you, you've been healed. You, you know... You, you, you have prayed and like you never prayed before to a, a God that you just seemingly really began to discover and understand. And God healed you. In the room today. Can you tell that to the world? You're like, oh, I can't tell it to the world. We can tell it to a person in the world. It always starts individually. Personally, those personal interactions. Maybe, maybe you've, you're like, oh, I'm not so sure. It's really close. It's really personal, really intimate, having a one-to-one -one with someone. Well, if you're friends with someone, then you ought to be able to have those interactions. But if you want an alternative to, you know, sort of cut your teeth on it, then you can go out and distribute literature. You don't have to say anything. You can invite people by, you know, just a, a group text. Not a long spammy one and not constant, not filled with other nonsense, but something, you know, helpful and edifying. There are plenty of entities that spam people's accounts with absolute rubbish. Surely you can, you can, you can bring some light into the uh, murkiness of WhatsApp. Well... For me, that's, again, that's enough. Jesus did it. Those who encounter Jesus do it. Jesus expects His disciples to. And so you should. But there might be someone here this morning who's like, okay, that's kind of like, you know, parents saying, you should do it because I told you to. Which, I mean, I don't think is a terrible answer, and parents who have used that for millennia don't think it's a terrible answer, but children are less convinced. What is the why behind the why? Why does Jesus tell you to? Why does, do those who encounter Jesus tell people the gospel? Why does Jesus expect His disciples to tell people the gospel? Well, first of all, in a divided world, Jesus brings reconciliation. That point I've already noted as our room bears it witness. But where is that in the text? Verses 7 through 9, Jesus is there at the well. And a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Doesn't mean much to you. You're like, what is this, this woman? You know, what's important about her? Well, there's a couple of things. She's a Samaritan. 
and she's a woman. Samaritans were people that, as she herself says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They practiced what seemed to be a form of the Christian, uh, Christian the Jewish faith, but the Jews didn't recognize it. The Samaritans religiously acknowledged only the first five books of what we call the Bible. Only the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is it. The Samaritans worshipped on another mountain, Mount Gerizim. They, uh, they, because they held to the first five books only, they see Mount Gerizim as that one of those mountains on which the people of Israel stood and declared praises over the promised land as they were entering into it. And so they, they, um, they made that their place of worship. So they have different Bible, they have a different place of worship, they have a different approach to worship, different system. Do you know that there are people to this day who worship according to this pattern in modern day Samaria and still offer sacrifices on Mount Gerizim? You can look into that later. It's interesting that they have endured longer than the sacrificial religious system in Jerusalem. In any case, the Samaritans were not well esteemed by the Jews for religious reasons. But it went deeper than religious reasons. It was also um, cultural reasons and ethnic reasons. You see, the Samaritans were not considered to be for lack of a better term, purebred Hebrew. They were mixed from various nations across the Assyrian Empire who were transplanted into that region by Assyria. When Assyria took the Hebrews of that region, ten tribes of them out and scattered them across other parts of the empire. The Assyrians kept those who were of low IQ and not particularly skilled or gifted in Samaria. And so by placing some of their guys from across the Assyrian Empire into that region, over time there develops relationships and intermarriage between idolatrous, low-skilled, less intelligent Jews who had abandoned the ways of the Torah, and complete pagans from all over the Gentile world. Do you see how maybe the Hebrews, the Jews, in the purity of their religion saw this as really a no-go area? They didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were unclean. So to say they didn't like the Samaritans is actually an understatement. They hated them. They despised them. They were unclean. And um, there, there's a number of things here that, that we see that Jesus does that he shouldn't do. He, um, he is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. Furthermore, he is a Jewish man speaking to a woman, not something that is normative, unless you have a close relationship with said woman. Worse still, he is a rabbi a teacher who is speaking to a woman alone. 
the optics of that are not great. And so, and it's something that they would not have done. Rabbis would not have communicated with women on, a, on that sort of one-to-one -one basis. And so Jesus is a Jewish rabbi man talking to a Samaritan woman who is separated from him or should be separated to him by virtue of her religion, her ethnicity, and her ritual cleanliness. It's not someone that he should be engaging in conversation. But he does. Why? Because Jesus brings reconciliation to a divided world. He's not concerned about her being a Samaritan. You never get, she's more concerned about him being a Jew talking to her as a Samaritan. She's more worried about him and what that means, him talking to her, reaching out to her, than he is being a Jewish rabbi man talking to her. It's interesting. In a divided world, Jesus brings reconciliation. In a dry world, Jesus brings refreshment. Where are they? They're at a well. And, and what does Jesus do? He uses their location, something that is in the immediate context, as a hook on which to hang his declaration of who he is. Something you might pick up in your own sharing of the gospel. If it's someone you know, there may be some shared experience. There may be something that you enjoy, something that you know about the other person in their history, something that, that is just around you, some, something that they make a comment about in the week about the world around us or about something that they find dissatisfactory or any number of things that you might could link to the gospel message. You find... Um, unnatural segues into new topics of conversation all the time with your mates. Seamlessly going from one subject to the next to the point that by the end of the conversation you're in a certain place where you don't actually know how you got there from where you began. Or am I wrong? That's how we communicate. So why can't we do that with Jesus without it seeming forced or weird? I, I, I think it's more our awkwardness than the awkwardness of the people we're talking to. So um, I, I would encourage you to learn from Jesus' example just at that point. But they're at a well, and she's drawing water. And in a dry world, Jesus brings refreshment. She's thirsty. She's come to the well at the hottest time of the day. Something else to just file that away for a moment. We'll, we'll mention that in a, a few minutes. She has come to the well thirsty. And she meets someone who can give her water of eternal life. Not literal water. She's speaking literally and still interprets him literally a few times. But he communicates figuratively, but in the end brings it home who he is in a way that can't be forgotten because you have a hook. She, she will always remember she went to the well one day for water and a man told her about rivers of life. Water of life. Refreshment that goes beyond the, the cup of water she has in her hand. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water 
and the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So that you may be physically parched and you need to stay hydrated. Jesus does something in your life if you keep going to Him and drawing on that that is eternal, that bubbles up with life, that refreshes you, that cleans you, that washes you, that, that, that ministers to you when you're thirsty. When, when, when you have questions, He gives you answers. When, when you are confused, He comes and consoles you. When, when, when you are struggling, is there for you. It's always flowing. It's constant. You never perhaps think about where our sources of water come from, where bodies of water are. are. If you go out into the countryside and you see streams, you admire the stream, but you don't know where it comes from. And, 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 and you're not really thinking about that. And you're not really thinking about how long it's been there for. And, and its course, but it's there. And you know that you can go back to that same place and see that same stream at a later date and it still be right where it was. But even those streams are created and even those courses can be altered. The eternal water of Jesus Christ cannot. You can always go and wash. You can always go and drink and be refreshed. Jesus is there for you. In a dry world, Jesus brings refreshment. But in a divorced, dying world, Jesus brings restoration. Why do you think the woman came to draw water at the sixth hour of the day? That is, at noon. You're like, I don't see the big deal about that. When I'm thirsty, if I'm thirsty and I don't have anything to drink, I just, you know, I go on to the shop. doesn't matter how hot it is outside. It, especially if it's hot outside, I'm going to go get something to drink. But put yourself in a context where the well is outside of the town, and it's a Middle Eastern context, and even more so, it's 2,000 years ago, and you have to go with a jar, and you're going, you're, you know, you're, this, this is going to be bigger than those, those three liter. Um, or what's the large ones? I think it's three liter, maybe five liter jugs of water that you get down at the Iceland. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a heavy thing and you're going to fill it with water. You don't want to be doing that when it's hot. You don't want to be toting that around in the heat of the day. So this is not you popping around to the shops to get a can of cola. This, this is you going for a heavy shop and you're carrying it back to your home you're going to do that early in the morning or later in, in, in the day, but later in the day doesn't work in this context because there's no lighting. So you're going early in the morning when it's cool, right? But she doesn't. All the other women go when it's early in the morning, but she doesn't. She goes alone. She's surprised to see someone else at the well, Jesus. Why is she there? Well, read verses 16 and following. Jesus says, tell your husband to come here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus doesn't nitpick that. He actually agrees, even though it's disingenuous of her. You're right what you say. No, it's true. It's true. It's, 
you don't have a husband. You, you, you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. Five husbands. Now, sometimes people think, oh, she must, you know, she must have been a really terrible woman, really immoral, and she's going through all these guys and jumping around. That's not their context, okay? The, 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 issue, the problem is not the five husbands here. In that society, women had no say whatsoever in divorce, remarriage, or anything like that. In all probability, she had five husbands. The options are because of death, divorce. And the divorce would have been initiated by the husband. That's how it worked. Okay, It's a very different context from our own. When you read scripture, please resist the urge to transplant your own understanding of 21st century British law into um, you know, something 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Still doesn't work that way in some countries. So um, she's been divorced or her husbands have died. She's a curse. She's bad news. She's damaged goods, not because she's just been unfaithful and promiscuous and all of that, just because those marriages don't end well. People either die or they divorce her. One of the two. But there is a problem with the second. And Jesus doesn't really, he doesn't, he doesn't belabor that. So be warned lest you single out someone's presenting sin and you start having a go at them for what you see as their presenting sin. That's actually not evangelism. That's, that's hammering someone with the law. You can acknowledge that you know, something that someone is or is doing is out of step with God's design. Absolutely. But, but Jesus doesn't belabor that. Jesus does not... They are, aware, they are aware of their sin. Jesus touches on her being aware of her sin in such a way that is both gentle but very precise and convicting so that she knows that she is exposed by the light of God and that, that she, she, this guy's the Christ. The one you now have is not your husband. And it's interesting, you can read this two ways. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are bad. I say wrong. They're, they're, they're bad. What's happening is either on the one hand, someone who is in a sexual relationship but is not married, which goes against the Bible's design for marriage, or someone who is in an adulterous relationship. In other words, it's how you emphasize the your of your husband. The one you now have is not your husband. But it may be someone else's. You can guess, you can speculate. Normally, when someone's committing adultery in the scriptures, it tells us. It identifies people as adulterers or as adulterous or as sexually immoral in that particular way. That's not really the focus here. The focus is on Jesus. Because in a divorced, dying world, filled with people who are deeply damaged and therefore do things that are consistent with deeply damaged people, Jesus brings restoration. Suppose all five of those men had died. 
She's grieving. The society around her sees her as a curse. No one will marry her. But she, still, she, needs, she's a, she needs a provider. It's the way things are set up. She needs someone to look after. She also craves companionship and, and relationship. And so she's with this person. That's not excusing the situation, but that's how she gets there. Suppose they all divorce her. They have made conscious decisions to put her away, to kick her out, to, to neglect their responsibilities as, as her husband. And you know what? You know, she, she's broken, devastated by that. She needs relationship. She needs companionship. There's someone over there who, who's kind to her still. And so she's with that person. Not excusing the, the sinfulness of the relationship or the damage uh, of that or how it's outside of God's design, but understanding why and how people get where they're at and knowing that Jesus can make things right. And so we have seen it in the life of this church, people who are in this very type of situation, strings of broken relationships and living with someone they're not married to, but they get married. Why? Because a man told them all they ever did. And it wasn't me, it was Jesus. They, they, they came to Jesus and they said, you know what, I think I want to honor Jesus and I don't even have to tell people. They say, I know that this aspect of my life is out of step with what I'm reading in Scripture. I want to make it right. And so we have those conversations and we get somewhere because Jesus brings restoration, the healing of all things, the restoration of all things according to His design. That's where we're headed. We're not there yet. But we're headed there. And all, all things will be healed. And the greatest of all divorces between God and His creation will cease. The divorce will be annulled. And the marriage will be on with great joy. That's, that's where we're headed. And that's what Jesus gives us a foretaste of, even in this passage. So, um, uh, you know, she has, she has this problem in her life relationally, but she, she changes, notice she changes the subject, I perceive you're a prophet, and then she wants to start talking about something else. Kind of understandable in some ways. So she's, she's saying our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but it's interesting, is it not, that she moves from personal marital divorce or brokenness to spiritual divorce and brokenness. The divorce between Jews and Samaritans. The brokenness between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus brings restoration. She knows death. She knows divorce. And she knows it at a spiritual level as well. Jesus heals all things. He will. But we must trust Him and follow Him. That is a message that we go out and proclaim. And finally, in a dark world, Jesus brings the light of redemption. We have to be clear, the spirituality of the Samaritans is murky at best. They do not accept most of the Scriptures. Their concept of God is thereby malformed. It's not complete. Their approach to worship is not acceptable. Any Jew would have seen the Samaritans as idolaters, even though they said they were worshiping the same God. 
they're worshiping idols. And they're worshiping idols idolatrously in a place where they shouldn't. They have a wrong view of God, a wrong view of worship, a wrong view of spirituality, but they have some view of God. And Jesus works with that. They have some view even of Messiah, and Jesus works with that. She wants to get bogged down in the details of their religious differences. Jesus doesn't. What Jesus points to is the Messiah who brings people out of these things onto a higher plane where they know how to worship God in spirit and in truth. And it's less about the place. And it's more about who you are worshiping. She wants to talk about, you know, our fathers worship on this mountain, you worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. You worship what you do not know. And I'll say for a lot of people, in fact, everyone in this world at some level worships who they do not know. But they worship. Why? Because everyone, including the ones who deny the existence of God, have something that is transcendental, that guides their life and holds their life together. Does that make sense? Everyone is seeking something higher. Jesus gives us something higher. He shows us something higher. He takes us higher. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You don't need a mountain to go higher. All you need is Jesus. He brings you to the very presence of God. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He says that the Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and truth. The scales fall from her eyes. The darkness that she had, that spiritual murkiness, begins to move away. And, and although she was worshiping what she did not know, Jesus led her to one that not only the Jews know, but one whom He is. The Christ, the Messiah. I who speak to you am He. She, she, the, the dark was beginning to go, but she was not so sure. But Jesus says, I, you know, when she says, I know Messiah is coming and He'll tell us all things. Right? You know, okay, it's kind of one of those agree to disagree moments. Right? Uh, he'll tell us. He'll clear all of this up one day. And Jesus is like, I'm here. I've just cleared it up for you, love. And, and, and so she goes off into the town and says, is this the Christ? And everyone comes out. And then they say, even though the text says they believe because of her testimony, they then say, no, it wasn't your testimony. We actually experienced Jesus for ourselves." And we know that this is indeed not simply the Messiah. Notice the change of language. Not simply the Messiah, the Christ, a, a Jewish figure. This is the Savior of the world. And so we can be Jews. We can be Samaritans. We can be Gentiles. We can be from anywhere in the world. And we can know and love God in Jesus Christ. Why would you not share that message? Jesus shared it. Those who encountered Jesus share it. Jesus' disciples are expected to share it. Why? 
Because in a divided world, Jesus brings reconciliation. In a dry world, Jesus brings refreshment. In a divorced, dying world, Jesus brings restoration. And in a dark world, Jesus brings the light of redemption. He says, I who speak to you am He. He's telling you this morning, maybe you need to hear the gospel this morning. He is saying He is the Savior. For a long time, the reason you're here is because you worship something you do not know. You have some idea of something transcendental, so you've come to church. You have a God of your understanding. But, but, but Jesus shows us the God who created understanding, who gives reason, and who comes and tells you into the darkness of your life and says to you, I am He. You don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to speculate. You don't have to project. I am He. Let's worship Jesus. Let's proclaim Jesus. Let's tell the world about Jesus. Amen.